Welcome to the Sphinx Thinks podcast. I'm Georgina Holmes and we'll be progressing through time to uncover the mysterious world of life on Earth. From the emergence of life and evolution of us to the first civilizations and innovations that got us where we are today. I hope you enjoy the show. Started reading up on, on chimpanzee tool use and, and culture because we think that this behavior is cultural. It differs between groups and individuals uh, learn this at least in part from others. So how does how is culture then influenced by the environment? In today's episode of the Sphinx Thinks podcast, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Catalina Copes, lecturer in primatology at the University of Cambridge. We're covering some fascinating topics, including primates, tool use, and the interaction of environment, culture, and cognition in these behavioral traits. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Without further ado, let's dive in. So to start off, I wanted to ask you how you got into studying primatology specifically and where you feel its places within archaeology. That's a good question. So where, how I decided to study, it goes really way back to when I was little. It's quite funny. I think my mom told me, I don't know how old I was, maybe four or five. And I, I think I saw Jane Goodall on television. And then I thought, oh my goodness, you can do something like that. Because I was always very interested in all animals. It didn't matter what it was like from insects to horses. And then I found out you could actually do that as a job. So I thought that was just the best thing ever. And that kind of always stuck with me. So then when I came to the decision of going to university and what shall I study, I, I talked to many people and I asked, if you want to do something like that, then what should I study? And actually, then the advice was do something like biology. And um, I'm, I'm Dutch, so the University of Utrecht had quite a good behavioral biology group. So I talked to people there. And indeed, they did field work with orangutans and other primates. So that's where I went then to study for my, for my undergrad and master's. So that's how I um, yeah, came into the field of primatology. And then initially, my first project on chimpanzees was actually with captive chimpanzees so I studied the chimpanzees in the Arnhem Zoo in the Netherlands on a project on conflict resolution and um, how do they so when they fight what do they do after the conflict how do they resolve this and so that got me going on chimpanzees and then uh, the next project I did for my master's was with with wild chimpanzees in Guinea so, so that answers the question of how I got into primatology and then how it fits into archaeology. So for me, my, my background is not in archaeology at all. It's more in behavioral biology. So I'll just tell my story and then you can see how I ended up in the de department of archaeology where I am now. So after my master's, I, um, I came to Cambridge to do my PhD uh, and it was then the department of biological anthropology. And I continued studying the, the chimpanzees in Guinea. And that's when I started really looking into tool use and why do they use technology, which is a question I'm still stuck on today. And um, so I did my PhD. Then I became a research fellow in Cambridge. At that time, I think it was the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology. This department has had many different <laughs> names and shapes. Um, and then after that, I went for um, about four years to Switzerland, to Zurich, to the Department of Anthropology there. And I continued studying chimpanzees and bonobos, and we can talk about that later. And then recently, so last, the end of last year, beginning of this year, I came back to Cambridge as a, as a lecturer in primatology, 
in what was then the Department of Archaeology, which now in kind of overarches and has biological anthropology in it and many other things as we just uh, earlier talked about before the interview. So I am within archaeology and within archaeology in biological anthropology and within biological anthropology I came from a biology background. So this, this highlights how diverse these fields can be and how you can come from really different backgrounds to end up in a, yeah. in a department. Yeah. I always find it interesting hearing how people got into the certain field they're studying because it never seems they set out with the intention of going down that certain route. So focusing on your research and tool use, we used to use the term man the hunter to define humanity. How has studying primate tools and technology changed this view and perhaps what is the latest evidence of this? Well, I think it started all with, with Jane Goodall's findings way back when in, in Gombe, when she indeed found out that, that the chimpanzees, they, they not only use tools, but they also make tools. So then uh, that was the famous quote, quote from Lewis Leakey, which I don't know off the top of my head, but basically that now we have to, you know, redefine... Um, redefine tools. Yeah, or if chimpanzees use tools, then what about, like, why are we not special anymore? Ah. So um, I think that was the first kind of sh shaking up of, of that belief. So by now we also know that many other species use tools. So it's not only chimpanzees, it's not only primates, it's, um, you know, corvids, they can use, as research from Cambridge has shown, they can use tools in extremely clever ways. So I think we've moved on a lot from thinking that humans are the only tool users or tool makers. And I think the more we find out about animal to use and then in my case I'm specifically interested in chimpanzees because they are one of our closest living relatives together with uh, bonobos we can look at so what why do chimpanzees use tools how do they use tools how do they learn to use tools how do they acquire these skills and then at much more on a detailed level look at and how is that then different from us or is it so I think we've gone much beyond the fact that um, we're not the only tool users to, to looking at, okay, but how are we, how are the processes and what can uh, apes tell us about how humans became how we are today? So, yeah, we're now really looking into the processes and the hypotheses about the evolution of tool use. So, how is your research, what is that specifically focused on within um, chimpanzee tool use and what have you found from studying them? So my research initially, um, when I started my PhD, really focused on, my question was, how does the environment, so the ecological conditions, how does that influence whether you use tools, how you use tools? And, and that question came from when I uh, started reading up on, on chimpanzee tool use and, and culture, because we think that this behavior is cultural, it differs between groups and individuals uh, learn this at least in part from others. So how does how is culture then influenced by the environment? That question came from reading articles about initial research trying to show that chimpanzees have culture in the first place. So then if you want to show that, you have to show that behavioral differences between chimpanzee groups cannot just be explained by, for example, genetics. You know, if all East African chimpanzees do something and the West African chimpanzees don't, then maybe it's actually explained by genetics. Or if all chimpanzees with um, termite mounds in their forests 
um, fish for termites and all the ones that don't have termites may termite mounts don't, then, you know, that's the simple explanation of environmental restrictions. So initially in that research, people try to exclude genetics and the environment from studies of, of culture and tool use. But it, of course, it doesn't mean that the environment doesn't also influence how you use tools or whether you use tools, because these are ecological adaptations to surviving in, in, in an environment you are. So I really wanted to dig into that. How does your environment influence whether or not you use tools. And that was my initial research on, on the chimpanzees in the Nimba Mountains in, in Guinea. So I was interested, is it maybe a matter of opportunities? So if you have a lot of opportunities to bump into, for example, uh, trees with nuts and stones underneath, does that explain whether or not you end up using tools to crack open nuts? Or is it more about um, necessity? Is it, a, is it a case that if there's almost no other food around, that's when you end up using tools. So I was looking at, at these kind of questions. So and then, uh, yeah. yeah. I was just gonna ask, what, what did you find? But you can continue saying what you're gonna say. Yeah, I was gonna say, for that, looking within the, in this, in this mountainous chimpanzee site, it looked like for them, the most important explanation was opportunities. So if you had opportunities, for example, to encounter lots of army ants as well as materials for tools, uh, you would end up fishing for them. But the termite mounds were very, very peripheral to where the chimpanzees lived and they didn't fish for termites. And the same thing goes for nut cracking. So the chimpanzees that live very close to where I work in Bosu, they crack nuts, nuts a lot. So they use stones, uh, hammer, uh, stone hammers and anvils to crack open oil palm nuts and we're only five kilometers away in the Nimba mountains and they don't do it so that was really super puzzling starting off there and then it turns out that the 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 trees that have these nuts they are very only on the edges of where the chimpanzees live and the, they are very unproductive these trees these oil palm trees don't really like the mountains so there are very few nuts around uh, so they could they could do it, but the opportunities are very low. And of course, if you if a behavior is to spread, it's not only you know that you have to figure it out. You have to innovate it. You have or or alternatively, somebody has to come from for, for example from Bosu, a chimpanzee, move to Nimba and introduce the behavior. But then still, you would have to uh, have enough opportunities to meet together and be at the same time under a tree when there are nuts available. So these, the odds are very, very low. So from that work, it looked like, okay, opportunity actually is really important. This doesn't mean that necessity doesn't matter at all. I think we have to look more into this, but from, from this work, opportunity really came out as, wow, that's, it really matters how many opportunities you have for, an, for, for tool use to, uh, to occur. That's fascinating that um, animals of the same species but in different groups can display these different behavioural traits. Do you think that's a combination of both cultural and ecological factors? Yeah, so this is exactly, you're, you're right, you're hitting the nail on the, on the head that it's not either environment or culture or cognition, it's really these three factor sets working together. So you have to, and that's kind of where, where my work moved towards to exactly that. So how do they, these things interact? So the question of um, kind of cognition or motivation or interest in objects, 
how that might influence, that's what I try to address by studying chimpanzees as well as bonobos. So there's these sister species that are very similar to chimpanzees in many ways, but they don't use tools almost at all. So they, they might sometimes make an umbrella as a, when it's raining, but they don't use tools to get their food. So why is this the case? So then you have to look at all these, like you said, you have to look not only at the environment, but also at the cultural side, the social learning side of things, how many opportunities for learning from others are there. And then the cognitive aspect, I try to address that by looking at the intrinsic uh, motivation to interact with objects. Because imagine that even if you have all the opportunities in the world, if you simply really don't care about objects and you're just not interested because you're busy maybe with social things, then that would also have a very different outcome. And that indeed seemed to be a big difference between chimpanzees and bonobos. So I looked at, it was really fun. I got to study the youngsters. So I looked at uh, individuals from roughly one year old until I think the oldest maybe was seven. And if you look at how much they interact with objects, just it can be play, it can be investigating, you know, poking in a hole or something like that. There was a real big difference between the two species. So the, at all ages, the bonobos were much less likely to, to even interact with objects, even though, you know, these are two, I, I was working at the time in Uganda to study chimpanzees and in the DRC to study bonobos. And these are two forested sites. So both sites have sticks and leaves and, you know, objects are around in the forest. So there seems to be also really something intrinsically uh, different between species which can help to explain so you have to look at all these things you have to look at the environment you have to look at the social setting so how tolerant are other individuals etc and you have to look at these kind of motivational intrinsic predispositions if you like it's incredible really and that difference between bonobos and chimpanzees i hadn't quite realized that they um, were so different tool use wise and you know, we don't know what our common ancestor was like, whether they use tools like chimpanzees or not. And studying this behavior can provide that insight. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So, and that's why hopefully now in the future, we're developing a project where we're also going to look at gorillas that are even uh, more distantly related. So they don't really use tools in the wild either. There's only very few anecdotes, but I want to know, but how do they interact with objects? Like, are they completely uninterested or how, like, where are the differences there and how different is their feeding ecology? Does that really explain all of it or not? Uh, so yeah, you, we can learn a lot by looking at, at the different apes and try to figure out what's going on there and what's driving it. Indeed, in, the, in order to figure out, like, how did we become these crazy ultimate tool users that use uh, webcams and <laughs> Zoom yeah. and what? <laughs> quite a development so what um i was looking at what else um perhaps you were looking at and what can perhaps um the nesting patterns in chimpanzees um show us with regards to maybe environmental factors and maybe even the transition from arboreal to terrestrial living yeah, so that was uh, the nesting work was was part of my PhD research when I was trying to figure out um, how does the environment influence elementary technology in general. So not only tool use, but also the construction of, of nests. So chimpanzees and, and other apes, they make a, 
a nest or a bed or a sleeping platform, whatever you like to call it, every night. And they make an, a new one almost every night as well. So then the question is how, like, wh where do they, wh why do they nest where they nest? And, and how does the environment influence that? So again, how, how are they adapting to having maybe the best place to sleep? And in that research, we found that um, it's actually one environmental factor that was really important was, was the humidity. So when it was very wet, so in, in the wet season, we have a very long wet season, which lasts about nine months. So uh, during that time, we, were, we found that they were both sleeping higher up in the tree where it's less humid, and they were also sleeping, uh, building nests at higher altitude. So they were kind of doing a double whammy of trying to find just the, the drier places to sleep. So they, they are really adapting. They're not just sleeping in random places. They're really, depending on the conditions, choose a place to sleep. And then we also saw that they really have a very strong preference for certain trees. It's not any old tree that will do. They really have trees that they, that they prefer for, um, I think if I remember correctly, because this is a long time ago, they really, they liked it when the leaves were a bit bigger and certain trees might have just really nice uh, characteristics in terms of bendable branches. Cause you don't want to, when you're building a nest, you don't want to just like the, the, the branches to just snap off because then you won't get a stable structure. You want to kind of be able to weave them together, which is what they do. And so yeah, certain tree species are really highly preferred. To the point that I remember a couple of years ago, I was in, a, in this remote valley and I looked at a tree and I saw a little mark that we had made, I think five years ago with a machete. And that was because there had been a nest in it. And there was a new nest in exactly the same tree. I mean, there are many trees in the primary rainforest. So it was pretty amazing to see that, wow, this, this particular tree has been you know, preferred maybe even for a long time, even though it looks like they're just an endless availability of trees. It's genius that they're so selective and take into account those environmental factors to know what will work best for them with regards to tool use and construction. Exactly. The selectivity we see on many levels. So um, for, the, for the end dipping, which these chimps do a lot, they also have this one species that they use way beyond expectations. If you look at, I did these uh, plots, these vegetation plots around the places where they dipped for these army ants. And, you know, you look at what species are around and there's this one species that they use way more than you would expect. So it has these really nice straight uh, branches. So if you look at it, you'd go like, yeah, that would make a really good tool. And what we saw is that when they, want, when they were going to do uh, ant dipping, they would go much further from the ant nest for this particular species. So sometimes, you know, if, you re if, there's, if it's not around, they might grab also tools from close by. But for this particular species, they were willing to go like even 10 or 20 meters from the ant nest to get that particular species. Fascinating. So are there any other examples of chimpanzee tool use beyond um, food preparation and food uptake? Chimpanzees in general use tools for just about anything. So also in a social context, they might use certain tools to communicate. They, they do this thing where they, um, we call it leaf clipping. So they either with their hands or with their mouth, they, they just kind of rip the leaves of a stem. And that can actually have even different meaning according to where you are. So in, in, um, 
is there in some places in I think in, in Uganda in Budongo they do it when they want to invite a female to mate so you hear like and then you can see a male sitting somewhere and a female maybe coming up for to, to mate with this male in other places it might be to invite somebody to play and then in other places it might also be a sign of frustration in in Nimba where um, where I did most of my work they do something similar they kind of they they take off the leaves and they also did it when in the early days when we would find the chimpanzees they i think they were just agitated so they also would do it in a kind of like i'm nervous but i still kind of want to see what you're doing so yeah this, so this in a in a in a social setting they can use tools they use tools for hygiene they can use leaves to like clean maybe blood or something off them um yeah and then in foraging and in so many different ways, not cracking, termite fishing, and dipping. They, and to drink, they, they use leaves to, as sponges. They can do it in a tree hole, for example, to drink water. And sometimes they even sponge water from a stream, which is funny because you could just put your head down, but they some still would, <laughs> would use sponges. So yeah, it's, it's there, and they use, they use tools to break open beehives and to dip for honey. It's really, there's so much. They really do have such a diverse range of uses for tools. So as bonobos don't particularly use tools um, as opposed to chimpanzees, how often and what uses do we see of tools within other non-human primates? Yeah, so within the African age, the, 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 the chimpanzees really are the champions. Um, and then in Asia, the orangutans, they're also, it's interesting because they're the different species of orangutans, so the, the Borneans and the Sumatrans, and then within Sumatra you also have the Tapanuli orangutan. But uh, what they see there is that in Sumatra the orangutans use much more tools. So they use tools for uh, getting insects from uh, trees, and they use tools to break open, break open these big uh, fruits, Nisia fruits. I've never seen this. This is the only ape I haven't seen in the wild yet. They um, they, they often use their, their mouth to use tools, actually, because they're so arboreal, so you might not always have your hands free. And they, um, they get the seeds from these really prickly fruits. They have these really annoying hairs uh, on them, apparently. So, yeah, so orangutans, and they use tools also in different contexts. And then uh, if we go to the, to the monkeys, so outside of the apes, uh, there's been extremely interesting research kind of over the last 10, 15 years on capuchin monkeys. They also crack nuts, for example. They, these tiny monkeys, but they, they also use, uh, use these big stone hammers to crack open nuts. And some populations even use uh, stick tools to, um, for example, to get um, scorpions or other things from crevices. They, they live in these kind of very um, rocky areas and they, they use sticks for that. And then uh, another newcomer kind of to the two-use club has been, it's already not that new, but the macaques in, in, in uh, Thailand that also use, uh, they even crack also nuts and they use tools to eat um, aquatic resources. So they use this kind of hammer stones to get, I think, mollusks, mollusks of rocks, etc. So that's been super exciting that even stone tool use is not only the apes, but also capuchin monkeys and, and these macaques. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a moving field. Even, even within chimpanzees, at some point you think, now we must know all about them. And then we discover a new behavior. So it's, 
you know, and also the more communities that we study, the more things you discover. So in Nimba, for example, what we found a couple of years ago is that they eat freshwater crabs. This has never been found in, 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 in chimpanzees. And all of a sudden, like, what, what are they doing? We found these traces in the streams. And it's like, this is strange. And then we put up motion-triggered cameras, which is such a wonderful tool for field work, because you can just leave it there and they can keep, you know, keep an eye out for you. And then, indeed, we found that these chimpanzees, they, they love it. They come every month of the year to these streams and they, they eat freshwater crabs. So, you know, they, they will keep surprising us. It's, uh, yeah. It's wonderful to be able to look at all these different primate species and compare how behaviour and biology differ. So how do we relate this back to humanity and our own use of tools and our own behaviour? I think for me, the main, the, the main benefit of studying living apes in order to try to find out what drives tool use is that we don't, it's not that we only have the tools, we also have the behaviour right there. So we can as we talked about already, we can look at these different factors that drive tool use. We can look at the environmental conditions. We can look at the social setting, how many individuals are around, like when do you learn to use tools? So we can, we can link behavior to tools. Because of course, when we look at the fossil record, you know, you, you might find certain tools, but you don't, you can reconstruct maybe what even what the social group was, but you cannot actually observe the behavior also that created that particular tool. And the capuchins have been also very informative in that sense because they turn out to sometimes make flakes when they are cracking. And these are not intentional flakes, but it, it turns out that they're pretty hard to distinguish from, from supposedly intentional hominin flakes. So, you know, we really have to question like, okay, what does it look like? What can, can these uh, primate species do? And what does that mean for what we find for, for, for hominin species or for early humans? Thank you for that. So if anybody's listening and they want to find out more about primates and the study of primatology, where can they go? What can they read and listen to to learn more about this subject? Um, well, I think one of the real benefits, there are benefits to the pandemic, is that there are all these amazing seminar series that are now online. So usually every most research groups have their seminar series that are, you know, um, they, they hold them and you would have to go there, but now they're on the internet. So um, I think that's a good starting point. There's the seminar series of um, uh, in Oxford of the primate research there. They're good. There's a seminar series from the University of Liverpool. UCL has a seminar series. So there are all these different anthropology, archaeology type seminar series, which is great. So you get to watch all these speakers from all over the world from your couch. So that's, that's one thing that, that is available much more now than before. And then, of course, there's so much to read. I mean, where do you start? I, I even, like, I look next to my computer. There's a pile of books that I have ordered but not even read yet. <laughs> so you can simply keep going. But I think, you know, watching, watching these seminars will spark many ideas because then somebody will talk about their new book or their new something, and you can, like, oh, that's interesting, and you can look that up. So I think... Under the current circumstances, that's a really good place to start. There are lots of great opportunities to explore this field more, and there's so much more to be found. And I think it's a it's a fascinating field to consider within the realms of biological anthropology. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been fascinating. Oh, you're more than welcome. My pleasure. A huge thank you 
to Kat for taking the time to talk to me. And as you can see, there's so much more to be found in this field. So if you have any questions, queries or suggestions, please get in touch. I'm at the Sphinx Thinks on Instagram, Sphinx underscore Thinks on Twitter. And you can find me at my website, www.sphinxthinks.com. Hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next time.